Hello, this is Gary Miller, president of the University of Akron. We're honored to have you listen to our podcast series, Diverse Engineering, which is made possible thanks to the generous support of our gold sponsors, GPD Group and Continental Contatech. The University of Akron and our community partners are committed to the success of students from around the world and in our own backyard. We're especially proud of the contributions and successes that have resulted from the hard work, determination, and dedication of our students of color. Please enjoy our podcast. Welcome to Diverse Engineering, a podcast celebrating the stories, voices, contributions, and innovations of minorities to their fields of engineering. What does CAD, computer automated design, microphones, video games, color TV, wireless phones, artificial hearts, stents, and dishwashers all have in common? You guessed it. All were inventions or inventions that were significantly improved by historically excluded engineers. My name is Ebony Bond and I am a mechanical engineering graduate from the notable University of Akron and I will be your host for this podcast. This season honors minority professors and researchers in engineering at the university. You can expect to hear their stories about navigating their education and careers and hear about the research and real world impact that they are making through their research. For more information about our podcast and to stream past episodes, visit uacron.edu forward slash diverse engineering. This episode titled Strong Foundations features Dr. Jose Alexis de Abreu Garcia. Here's what you should know about Dr. de Abreu. Dr. Dere Abreu received a Bachelor's of Science in Electrical Engineering and PhD degree from Queen's University at Kingston, Canada in 1982 and 1986, respectively. From 1985 to 1986, he was a visiting scientist at Imperial College of Science and Technology in London, England, which is their version of MIT. In 1987, he joined the University of Akron, where he is an electrical and computer engineering professor. He has chaired the electrical and computer engineering department, worked as a control specialist at Goodyear, served as associate and track editor of the Institute of Electrical and Electronics Engineers, known as IEEE, Transactions on industrial electronics over 14 years, authored and co-authored over 100 publications, consulted for NASA and several Fortune 500 companies, co-founded and directs the University of Akron Center for Advanced Vehicles and Energy Systems, has advised nine PhD and 22 master's students to completion, and holds three patents. We look forward to sharing your story as a professor and researcher here at the University of Akron. Thank you so much for taking the time from your 50 obligations as a professor to join us today. How do you feel about being here today? I feel wonderful. Thank you for such a fantastic introduction. I, you know, for a while I was wondering who the heck you were talking about. That's <laughs> you who has this, this fabulous introduction. Um, so speaking of introduction, um, I know where you're from, but if you could tell the people a little bit about where you're from and what was it like growing up there uh, I am Aria from Caracas, Venezuela. Okay. Uh, that is the northernmost country in South America. Okay. Um, growing up in Venezuela was pretty much like growing up here in the U.S., um, uh, you know, for families of very low income because okay. we were, we were actually really quite poor. Okay. Uh, even so, my parents worked very hard to make sure that we always had enough, uh, to eat. Uh, even though we were poor, our next door neighbors were actually even poorer than we were. Mm-hmm. And so their kids had 
all three meals at our home every single day for as long as I could remember. Wow. Um, you know, other than that, I, I think if the experience was pretty much that of uh, any other kid. Maybe a difference is that, you know, we had a cake for for birthdays, but no birthday presents, for example. Okay. Because, you know, the budget would not allow for that. But, gotcha. but we survived. We made it. Mm-hmm. So what was your relationship to education growing up? My parents did not really have the ability to go to, to school. My mom uh, went to, uh, you know, through second grade and she didn't even finish second grade. My dad really had no formal education whatsoever. But their number one goal was to ensure that their kids had the college education that they so much wanted for themselves and mm-hmm. couldn't achieve. Mm-hmm. And so they, you know, they strive to make sure that we got to get a college education. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I am the youngest of eight, okay. seven boys and a girl. Oh, wow. When I was about 13, eight for them was not enough. Okay. And so they adopted twins, boy and girl. Oh, wow. So they're really, you know, 10 of us. Oh. And, uh, you know, all of us really uh, went to college, uh, except for my uh, oldest brother, my two oldest brothers. I'm okay. sorry about it. So my two oldest brothers didn't go to college. Uh, they joined the military. Okay. And so they went to the army. But uh, the rest of us, we all went to college and we all have careers uh, in communications uh, marketing, journalism, you know, social sciences, education. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm the only one who chose to pursue engineering. Mm-hmm. So how did you come about studying engineering if, you know, your parents didn't have that level of education and you grew up really poor? I, I think it was inspired by my dad. Okay. I mean, he worked seven days a week, almost 24 hours a day. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was amazing. Uh, he would work at the restaurant from Monday through Saturday. And this was your family's restaurant. Th- this but, is, yeah, yeah, this is our family restaurant. Um, you know, we, we started out, uh, with nothing and, uh, he was able to scrape enough to buy a place, uh, with a huge mortgage, but, mm-hmm. uh, we were able to make it. So, so he was, uh, he was a chef mm-hmm. and he worked at the restaurant and, and we all worked at the restaurant, but, on Sundays, he actually would be at home building our home. Mm-hmm. So, you know, he would bring us six days, full days at the restaurant from uh, opening time to closing time. And, and, you know, in a country like Venezuela, it's different running a restaurant than it is in the U.S. Here you have closing times. Uh, you know, if it's 10 o'clock, then at 10 o'clock, you know, you, you shut your doors down. Mm-hmm. There, your closing time is based upon when your last customer actually leaves the place. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Regardless of whether it's 2 a.m. in the morning, 4 a.m. in the morning, midnight. And, mm-hmm. and so we never really knew what, you know, what crossing right. time was. Mm-hmm. Uh, but anyway, he, uh, you know, he designed and built our home, a very solid, large house mm-hmm. uh, made out of, uh, you know, concrete blocks and bricks. And, and he designed it all. He did all the calculations, mm-hmm. although he had never, ever stepped foot in a school. Mm-hmm. And he just figured it out by himself. So... To me, you know, that was a motivation to get into design because mm-hmm, I, mm-hmm. you know, I can say, see, this, this person who had no education whatsoever is able to figure out how to design something and make it work right. and do it well. I should be able to do that. So that was really my motivation for going into engineering because this is what you do in engineering. You design things. Mm-hmm to make human life better, easier, more enjoyable so to you, solve problems. You were able to recognize then that what he was doing with like engineering skills 
You you already knew that. Absolutely. I mean, if you know, if I looked at him, I I would put him up against any civil engineer right. or structural engineer. Right. Didn't you say something about like his, like the house he built was like the quality of the design based on like it was like it can withstand like any weather condition or something like that? I, I'll tell you what. Um, in 1967, there was a very, very bad earthquake in Caracas. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, tons of buildings collapsed completely. Mm-hmm. The loss of life, over 2000 people lost their lives. Um, this was a 7.5 on a Richter scale, which wow. is extremely, extremely bad uh, earthquake. Our house did not sustain even, even the slightest hair crack line, not wow. whatsoever. Wow. Uh, all the houses around the area, you know, the, the, some of the walls fell off and so on. The only thing that happened in my house was actually the, we had a break front that was my mom's pride and joy. That actually fell mm-hmm. off because of the seismic waves. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but other than that, absolutely nothing happened with the house. So that's how, you know, well it was built. Wow. So literally a strong foundation, built a strong foundation for you to go. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, the, um, we just worked uh, very hard our entire lives. Uh, we would get up because there were so many of us. Mm-hmm. We would get up early in the morning. Help my mom do all the work around the house. So we learned how to do, you know, cleaning, cooking, sewing, yard work. I mean, anything we mm-hmm. were able to do because we learned with my mom. Then we walked to school. Then after school, we would go to the restaurant and work. How far did you say? I think you said, how time. far were you walking to school? Uh, our grade school was about four miles from wow. our home. But, you know, to us, it was nothing. Right. We, we were so used to it. We, we never had a car. Right. We, couldn't afford to have a car. <laughs> right. And so we worked to school and then from school, we would take a bus to go to the restaurant and then we stay there until closing time and then we take a bus back home. Wow. And the next day we'll be, you know, getting up early, do the same thing. Wow. So you walked about four miles of school in, in grade school? In grade school, yes. Okay. And then when you left high school, you moved about three, four thousand miles away from, from Venezuela to Canada? Yes, absolutely. So what yeah. inspired that move and what was it like? Um, you know, when I was in, in college, um, when I turned grade uh, six, I was, you know, in grade six, a neighbor asked my mom if I could help her son mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. with math. Mm-hmm. And you know, my mom offered me without asking me. All right. Mom uh, told you. Know, you. <laughs> typical, typical. And so, uh, she said, well, Alex, you know, you're going to go and help this kid with math because it's failing math. So I helped mm-hmm. him and I just saw that he actually aced every test after that. Mm-hmm. And so word spread and people started to ask me to tutor their kids. So, uh, you know, I started to charge by the hour mm-hmm. and, um, we, which meant that it was actually, uh, spending all of my time you know, helping these kids. Um, and, and they were all actually, you know, pretty much wealthy kids uh, who went to private schools. I only had one, tu- I tutored only one student who actually went to a public school. So, and I mm-hmm. went to public schools. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I never had time to do homework, mm-hmm. but I, I still did very well in all of my courses, except English. Mm-hmm. And I figured that the only way to actually learn the language was to immerse myself in an English speaking mm-hmm. environment. So through this tutoring, I was actually able to save enough money. So when I, when I completed my high school, I had accumulated enough to be able to pay for 
my travel expenses, uh, living expenses for a year, tuition and fees for a whole year. Oh, wow. Um, and I figured that after that, I, you know, I just figured that I'd be able to do something, right. uh, you know, get a job or something to continue. Um, as luck will have it, uh, you know, as I'm gearing up to leave for the U.S., I got a scholarship, full ride to go to Canada. Uh, you know, pursue oh. engineering. So you were originally going to come to the U.S. I was originally coming oh, to I the U.S. I thought you were talking about Canada all along. No. Oh. I, well, what happened was that when when I looked into um, the cost of education, uh, when you look at Canadian universities, they are pretty much comparable to the top universities in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Their tuition and fee structure was actually more affordable mm-hmm. than that of the U.S. And, and at the same time, the exchange rate at the time, uh, you will get, you have to pay 4.3 Venezuelan dollars to, for the U.S. dollar, when it was only 3.1 Venezuelan dollars to the Canadian dollar. Mm. So it was actually better to go to Canada. So I, I actually applied to universities both places. Oh, wow. But I did, you know, I did get accepted at universities both there and here. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I I had the caveat was that I had to speak English perfectly well, mm-hmm. or I had to take the TOEFL. Mm-hmm. The TOEFL is the test of English as a foreign language, mm-hmm. and it's a test that foreign students must take before they can actually be admitted into a North American institution of higher I education. Know about that. Is that still a thing? Uh, yeah, with the I mean the the structure has changed, but it's still right. it, it's still a test that the students must take. Foreign okay. students, that is. Okay, unless you come from a from, you know, from a country where the native tongue is English. Right. right. Interesting. So you mentioned that you wanted to you know, immerse yourself where you have to like learn the English language. I'm just kind of curious, where does that motivation come from? Like what made you really want to be able to speak English really well? Because English was my poorest subject. Mm. I was always exempted. You know, the, the, the system in back at the time was such that if you if you were able to secure a ninety percent or higher okay. over the semester, uh, the semester actually academic year because we don't we didn't go by semester we went by academic year, and so all tests were actually cumulative. Wow. Um, we th- there was not such thing as term test. Right. You know they were all like from the beginning of the year until that point in time, yeah. and then the next test it was from the beginning of the year until that point in time and so on. Gotcha. But if you were able to get ninety percent or higher in the, uh, the, during the academic year, then you would exempt it from taking final exams. Mm-hmm. And I was exempted every year from every single course except English. English. Mm-hmm. And it bothered me to know it. Mm. Oh, that's so interesting. The, you know, the, the good thing about that is that in terms of summer vacation, I actually have two additional months of summer vacation compared to students who had to write finals. At that time, oh, I used wow. to, to tutor students and to work at the restaurant. Oh, well, so your motivation was just being in competition with yourself. Like, I got to prove this yeah. to myself that I can do this. In a way, yes. And, and I'm still learning. <laughs> well, As I you can we, tell, I still have somewhat of an absence. Oh, we all do. You, English is not an Eng- easy language. <laughs> yeah, it's not. It, the grammar is incredibly easy yeah. compared to the grammar of the languages I know. But the pronunciation is nearly impossible. Mm-hmm. So you went to Canada and then you went to London as a visiting scientist. What inspired that move? Um, when I was doing my PhD, um, my advisor actually had the opportunity to spend a sabbatical year at Imperial College. Okay. Uh, you know, he had applied, he, he had requested sabbaticals at different universities and, and Imperial College 
afforded him the possibility to actually get an office and do research there. And so I'll figure, well, you know, that's like the MIT of Europe. Right. And so wouldn't it be great if I could actually get a position there? So mm-hmm. um, I actually applied for a visiting scientist mm-hmm. uh, position at Imperial College and and I got it. Mm-hmm. So it was wonderful because, you know, I went there, I did research and I, you know, got to travel to Europe. And I get to ex- experience what doing research in such a highly coveted environment was like. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. You say and you happen to get in, but that's probably a testament to just like who you are, you know. Um, so you lived, you know, a diversity of places now, you know, at this point. Um, what was it like culturally? Were there like any surprises, any culture shocks or like any revelations or particular like conclusions that you made? Um, you know, in terms of cultural shocks, uh, not so much mm-hmm. other than language, of course, mm-hmm. because, you know, when I. When I went to Canada, I spoke no English whatsoever. Oh, wow. Um, but my dad was from Portugal. Okay. And so we grew up with Portuguese and uh, pretty much European and um, uh, Venezuelan cultures. Mm-hmm. So we were used to, uh, you know, different idiosyncrasies and, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. to different customs and so on. Mm-hmm. The biggest shock to me mm-hmm. was when I left Venezuela, you know, back in 1976, um, you know, I guess I'm giving away my age. <laughs> 1976, uh, Octo- actually October 1976, I flew a direct flight from Caracas to Montreal, Canada. Mm-hmm. And it was about 90 degrees um, <laughs> in Caracas when I left. Mm-hmm. And it was about 20 degrees when I arrived oh, in wow. Montreal. And of course, you know, you can get winter gear right. in a tropical country. Right. So I had nothing Oh, uh, in terms of protection, like, you know, earmuffs or scarves or hats or jackets or anything like that. I had a suit jacket and that was about it. Oh, wow. Um, uh, you know, and a regular shirt. And uh, and so that that was kind of a, a shock, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, having going through such a drastic change in temperature in a short period of time. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I rode, a, I, I took a bus to Ottawa. And I stayed at a hotel for a couple of nights and with a dictionary, I got a local paper and um, with the help of a dictionary, I, I figured out that there were ads for people who were renting rooms in their homes. Okay. And so I called one of these and I have no idea what I said and I have no <laughs> idea what the lady at the other end of the phone told me. <laughs> but the only thing that I that I got was the time and I and I thought, well, she's picking me up at this time. Okay. And she did. <laughs> <laughs> that is great. <laughs> oh. So, you know, I read I, they provided um uh, a room uh with two meals a day, okay. you know, breakfast and dinner. Oh. And you know, it was um a wonderful lady who had just gone through a divorce. She had mm-hmm. two boys, thirteen and fourteen, mm-hmm. and she needed the income, so she rented one of the rooms in her house. Right. Uh, to me, and, and we had a wonderful, wonderful relationship. And you know, the kids, I taught them how to drive and stuff like that. We, mm-hmm. it was them very, how to do math. it was very nice, <laughs> very, very nice. Yeah. So that was cool. It sounds like you got to be like a help to each other, you know, especially, yeah, yeah you being able to step in and help with the kids. Um, so what brought you to Akron? Well, I got a job here at the University of Akron. You know, I applied to different places. Um, uh, when I graduated in Canada, there was, a requirement that foreign students could not legally get a job for two years upon graduation. They had to leave the country 
And then after a two-year period elapsed, they could actually legally apply for positions in Canada. That is not the case anymore. Okay. But that was the way the immigration laws were back then. So I applied for positions in Europe, anywhere I spoke the language. Okay. Because, you know, I, I, I could do Portuguese, Spanish, Italian, or oh, English, wow. English by then. When did you um, learn Italian? Uh, most of my friends growing up were from Italy and they spoke nothing but Italian. So I picked it up oh, with wow. them. And then my dad was from Portugal. Okay. Uh, Italian actually came in pretty handy because my, my father-in-law was from Italy. Mm. So he and I spoke oh, wow. in Italian all the time. He, he liked the fact that I spoke Italian. So, oh, wow. So anyway, I, you know, applied for positions in Latin America, okay. Spain, Portugal, Italy, uh, England, anywhere I could. Okay. And I got, you know, I got offers from Venezuela. I got offers from Mexico. I got offers from here. But when I came in an interview in person here at the University of Akron, the chemistry was amazing. Mm. And, I, and not the science. I, with no, the people. <laughs> yeah, they, 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 yeah, with, with the faculty. Uh-huh. Uh, it was just unreal. And so it was like a perfect fit and an instant connection. Mm. And so even though the, the salary was actually a little lower, I took the position because I knew that it was it was going to be a good place for me to be. Oh, wow. And you've been here for how many years now? 35 years. So it was the right, the, relying on that feeling. Yeah, it was, it was the right decision. Oh, wow. I don't regret it a bit. Oh, wow. So what do you teach? And do you have like a favorite class that you like to teach? Yeah, I teach electrical and computer engineering. I have taught pretty much uh, everything from the alpha to the omega, from the very basic uh, freshman level classes to the PhD level classes. Okay. I'm an expert in control systems. And so I, there is a course called control systems one mm-hmm. that is probably the hardest course that the students take. Mm-hmm. How would you describe controls? Like what would you say controls is to like a seven year old if you had to? Well, if, if you look at everything around you, mm-hmm. uh, it needs to be control. You know, think about the temperature in the room. Mm-hmm. You set the thermostat to 70 degrees, right? Mm-hmm. And you expect the temperature in the room to be 70 degrees, not 55 or 89. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so that is pretty much a control system. When you set the temperature at a given set point, that's a set point, you say, well, 70 degrees, you're essentially telling the system, this is what I want you to do. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And if your HVAC system is working properly, it would set the temperature at 70 degrees, regardless whether you have leaky windows or put in walls or Mm-hmm. Uh, it should work, you know, like to be able to do that. Mm-hmm. And so when you look at everything from the stock market to pretty much anything in life, uh, it's all control. So it's all inclusive. It applies to every aspect mm-hmm. of life. Mm-hmm. And this is why I went into controls because mm-hmm. it's something where I can actually make a difference pretty much in many, many, many things. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, for example, I've worked in a number of things in controls. I, mm-hmm. I've developed a number of strategies. Uh, for industrial control applications that a lot of companies have adopted mm-hmm. and, and they're still using mm-hmm. uh, in their processes. But I also develop control strategies for uh, implantable heart pumps, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the type of pumps that are used during open heart surgery mm-hmm. to keep the patient alive. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they last typically about six hours. Oh, wow. uh, but then you have to control the inflow and outflow perfectly well because otherwise, your patient can become hypertensive or hypertensive or you, you can kill the patient during the right, surgery. Right. And so that is a control strategy that you need to be able to maintain during the entire duration of the surgery. 
but I have also worked in other type of applications that have to do with the utilities, for example. And, you know, you wonder, well, you know, how this is related. Well, they are related by the fact that they are systems. Mm -hmm. And once you think of something as a system and you describe it as such, mm -hmm. then they all look the same. Mm -hmm. So basically, if someone wants a particular desired outcome or desired end state, you're designing the whole process and considering the input so that they get to that's exactly right to, to the to the end state. Before we continue on with Dr. Alex De Abreu's story, I want to thank you for listening to this diverse engineering podcast series featuring our diverse engineering faculty at the University of Akron. My name is Amari Gambrell, and I am able to attend the University of Akron because of the diverse engineering scholarships that I received. These scholarships, which are offered through the College of Engineering and Polymer Science, make a huge impact in my academic success by reducing my financial need. If you would like to make a difference in a diverse engineering graduate student's academic career, please text WIE to 71777 or give online at www.uacron.edu forward slash giving forward slash WIE. So you come here, you teach, you love con teaching controls. Why go into academia and not industry like right after like leaving school? Well, remember that um, I started out at a very young age. I was, what, about 12, 13, maybe, mm -hmm. when I started uh, tutoring kids. Some of them are actually homeschooled, mm -hmm. uh, you know, every single subject. Um, they would just take the test at mm -hmm. the uh, Ministry of Education. And so I developed a passion for teaching. Mm -hmm. um, then when I was in grad school, um, I have four jobs, uh, part-time jobs, okay. uh, to be able to pay for grad school, although I had, you know, I had scholarships. And I had assistantships, but I had a teaching assistantship that afforded me the opportunity to actually teach courses in controls and electronics mm. to undergraduate mm. students. And it was there where I realized that the effect that you can have as a teacher on young minds is just phenomenal. And so I really fell in love with it. Um, I, I just love the academic environment. Mm. I love the fact that uh, during my graduate studies, I was working on my research topic, but I was also a research assistant for faculty in other areas. So that gave me the opportunity to get a taste of, you know, more than just what I was interested in. So with that in mind, I really wanted to be in the academic environment, mm -hmm. um, mainly because it's probably the only direct way in which you can reshape the minds of young people. Mm -hmm. So what does that mean to you to be able to do that? Well, to teach, uh, in my opinion, is uh, not only to convey knowledge, mm -hmm. but to really be able to make it a complete experience. Mm -hmm. um, what I mean by that is that, you know, yeah, we convey, we convey knowledge. We figured out a way of conveying knowledge to the students in a way that they can understand, that they can right. process it and gain knowledge from it, right? Right, right. Um, but it really goes beyond that because uh, you've got to teach them how to think because mm -hmm. I don't know and they don't know. So as a matter of fact, nobody knows what they're going to end up doing once they graduate. Right. That they're going to get a degree in electrical engineering, computer engineering. But those are such broad areas. You never know really what kind of problems you're going to run into once you, you, you graduate. And so the most important thing that you can do as, aside from conveying knowledge is 
uh, to provide them a very strong set of fundamentals so that they understand principles and concepts mm -hmm. to give them hands-on skills so they can understand how to bridge the gap between what the theory tells them that it is and how things apply in the real world. Right. But the single most important thing really is to teach them how to think critically. Mm -hmm. Because if they're able to become critical thinkers, once they have a good foundation and hands-on skills, they can tackle anything that's thrown their way. Mm -hmm. and, and that, to me, is really what our goal is. Mm -hmm. If we fail to do that, we have failed the students. Mm -hmm. So as a professor, you have to wear like many hats. Um, but I also know that you've done some things like outside of even like what's been required of you. And one of them was starting a, a scholarship fund for international women. What inspired that and how did like how did that come about, I guess? Well, you know, both my wife and I were foreign students. Mm -hmm. So we went to college or different um, uh, different countries. Mm -hmm. And my wife, you know, she went through uh, microbiology uh, and food science. I went through engineering. Uh, in engineering, if you if you look at engineering, female students at the time, especially, were almost non-existent. Mm -hmm. I mean, you could mm -hmm. probably count them, you know, with fingers in one hand, they have four fingers left. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, and then, you know, being here, mm -hmm. we also realized that, uh, you know, the trend pretty much persisted even after so many years. Mm -hmm. And so when my mom and dad passed away, uh, we used part of our inheritance to endow two scholarships, one for women in engineering mm -hmm. um, to kind of provide additional support to motivate women to go into engineering. Mm -hmm. And the other one was just a generic electrical and computational scholarship. Mm -hmm. My dad passed away first, then a couple of years after that, my mom. And so, you know, we wanted to honor their memories. And at the time, my in-laws were actually, you know, still up with us. Mm -hmm. um, my father-in-law passed away um, a while ago, you know, back uh, 11 years ago. Mm -hmm. My mother-in-law is still alive, but we still wanted to honor their memory. And so both scholarships are named after For them. Both sets of parents. That's really cool. Um, so... You've helped people, I guess, get through college who may ordinarily not have been able to afford to get through it. But you've also helped numerous students to completion. Are there any like characteristics um, of a finish, a finisher, uh, someone that, you know, like will stay the course or, you know, just things you observed of like a, a good a quality student? You know, if you look at somebody coming from a uh, a foreign country without speaking the language can go into an engineering program and succeed. Mm -hmm. uh, I see no reason why anybody else couldn't do it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, what does it take? Well, uh, you know, you have to be consistent. Mm -hmm. You have to do whatever you do with pride, right? You have mm -hmm. to, and passion. Mm -hmm. Pride and passion allow you to persevere, mm -hmm. to work hard, mm -hmm. and to set your goals and so as long as a student is willing to work hard, to persist, to be consistent, and to do whatever he or she chooses to do with passion and pride, not the false pride, but pride right. on knowing that you've done your best, mm -hmm. then they can certainly succeed. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, to me, those are critical ingredients. And if one of them is missing, especially passion, if passion is missing, you can work hard. Mm -hmm. And you can get a degree, but you will never be as good as you could be 
Right. Because it is passion that drives you to really be the best. Right, right. And so my advice is, you know, just do something that you're passionate about and you will just have a wonderful life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that passion, that curiosity piece, I think is, you know, linked to that. Um, but that's that's interesting because those are the things that people you might not expect you know, of a good student, you might say someone who's like particularly good at math or they really like excelled in chemistry or something like that. And you're just talking about like fundamental, just like character traits. Uh, yeah. Pretty much. Mm-hmm. So you talked a little bit about your research. Um, I know you mentioned like the heart pump valve, something mm-hmm. to that effect. Uh, you've designed for like industrial applications. If you could talk a little bit about like what problems that you aim to solve with your research and like who are you solving it for? You know, I started out as a control specialist and for many, many years, actually about maybe two thirds of my career, I, I did controls problems, uh, you know, in all areas. Mm-hmm. Um, the latter one third, I have actually moved into sensors, uh, developing, uh, and applications in the utilities industry. So okay. essentially, you know, the grid, for example. Okay. And the kind of problems that we're trying to solve are very critical mm-hmm. in terms of, uh, for example, keeping the, uh, the system from having power outages. Mm-hmm. But a few years ago, mm-hmm. the Pacific Gas and Electric Company mm-hmm. had some issues with their power lines. Mm-hmm. And um, they cut fire. The power lines cut fire, the, like the overhead lines. And uh, there's a town, well, there was a town called Paradise mm-hmm. in California, the entire town actually burned down to the ground and 85 people lost their lives oh, wow. because of a fire caused by power lines. Right. And so one of the sensors that, we're, that we actually developed and is actually being used mm-hmm. is a sensor that allows us to continuously monitor the conditions of the components of the electric utilities. Um, Essentially, what happens is that when, when these components start to deteriorate, they emit a given signal that if we're able to capture the signal and process it, we can tell exactly the level of deterioration of the component, where they need to be replaced, how soon they need to be replaced, so we can alert the utilities to send the crew and take right. care of it. Right. Uh, what that does is that it helps, it prevents power outages, it saves lives, uh, the discomfort that people have to go when, when there is no electricity, right. especially nowadays when Right. You know, electricity is everything. Right. But at the same time, you know, if, if you look at power outages in the U.S., it costs the U.S. about $110 billion a year. Oh, wow. Say that number about, again. How, how, how much? $110 billion. Wow. And so if you can mitigate this. And just power outages. Just power outages. Oh, wow. So with developed technology that allows us to do monitoring, we actually have another technology that allows us to monitor continuously again. Uh, the power lines, whether they are overhead or underground. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have developed technology that allows us to test cables. For example, most of the cables uh, used in the United States, they are buried underground. Nobody knows really where they are. Right. They've been there for 60, 80 years. Mm-hmm. And so the question is, how are those cables doing? Right. You know? And so we have developed technology that allows us to actually determine uh, by cables or aging cables from t- cables that are in good condition so you don't have to replace them 
Oh, you don't have to replace the ones that are going bad or the oh, ones wow. that are about to go bad. Oh, wow. Um, you know, when you look at uh, power towers, we develop technology that allows us to monitor the structural integrity of the power towers. Mm-hmm. A lot of these you can see as you drive down the highway, right? Mm-hmm. But a lot of them are in, you know, faraway places up in the mountains where access is restrictive. Right. And, you know, when, when they do like strict mining, for example, and these towers collapse, sometimes the towers are hanging from the power lines and the utilities have no way of knowing that wow. that's actually happening. So we develop technology that, you know, it's a sensor that we place on the tower and that can tell you whether a member of that tower has actually been removed mm-hmm. or in the case that somebody actually wants to hook up their power lines to the tower, we can detect that and tell the utility somebody's taking power of that. And that also applies to cell phone towers. So we can tell the cell phone companies where somebody's actually getting free service by oh, tapping wow. into their towers. Oh, wow. So not only are like the, you said $110 billion, billion dollar problem that you're attacking, but like literally helping to save lives, lives by a little sensor. Yeah, that's right. Wow. That's impact. Yeah. This sensor, you know, one of the sensors, um, that this company developed, uh, they came to us and the sensor is about the size of, you know, a carry on piece of luggage. Oh, wow. You know, when you travel. And, and of course, you know, that's not very practical for an industrial purpose, but they've been using it nevertheless. Mm-hmm. And so they came to us and they asked us if we could help them reduce the um, footprint of that sensor. Mm-hmm. Well, the sensor that they have is about $4,500. Mm-hmm. We normally reduce the footprint to pretty much just about a one and a half by two board with a chip on it. Mm-hmm. Um, we reduce the price to about three dollars wait per sensor and say this, that again and from this, 4500 how much to about three dollars oh and wow. you know between three and five dollars depending oh, upon the components wow. you use and and this now can go essentially anywhere you can deploy it anywhere because it's so inexpensive and it works better than the sen- the original sensor it's oh, actually wow. more accurate cheaper and you know, it runs on batteries and runs for years on a battery. Wow. So because it's very, very low power consumption. Wow. And it does everything wirelessly. So it collects the data. It transmits it to a sent to the cloud. From the cloud, it's downloaded to the service, is processed, and the information is passed along wow. to paying users. Wow. Like, I, I'm just thinking about, like, how much that actually is worth in industry, well, we have, um, this company actually has uh, a joint effort with the city of Akron. We have installed these sensors on the sanitary tracks. And so every time that they go out on their route, they're collecting data of the, the grid, the state of the grid uh, here in the, in the city of Akron. Uh, 75% of the city, because uh, 15% is served by a different company. But and that data is processed. And what we can do is that we can actually correlate that data with weather data. And then we can tell the utilities and say, look, uh, there is a weather front coming through. You need to have a crew at this location because this is where your power outage is going to take place. Wow. But beyond that, um, the city can actually use this information um, to attract industry to the area because they can say, look, we have a way of telling, giving you 
aside that we know that the supply of electricity is going to be pretty much uninterrupted, mm-hmm. whether there are weather conditions, the string mm-hmm. conditions or not. Mm-hmm. So that's a pretty strong marketable. Mm-hmm. So you you were talking about how you your product is students who and they go on and make like really great engineering salaries, but like you're sitting here as like a multi million dollar asset, literally. Pretty much, <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, hopefully the licensing of the patents will eventually start to pay off for the university and for you know us as uh, researchers. Mm-hmm. So do students get to be also a part of like those patents or like how does that work? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, a, a lot of these projects, uh, the graduate students work on them and we even have a number of undergraduate students uh, who are interested in pursuing research uh, also help with this project. Oh, wow. So they get to be on the patent. Uh, absolutely. Cool. Yeah. We have some, we have some of our graduate students on our patents, uh, depending upon their level of contribution. Mm-hmm. And that's, I think that's interesting because when you talk about like intellectual property and somebody's like contribution, like it's so abstract, but to say like just your thinking contributed to this, so you get to have some ownership in it. Yeah, that's yeah. right. That's yeah. right. Uh, you know, for example, we may come up with the idea mm-hmm. and told us doing, you know, this is what we want to do. This is what we want to do it. And they actually put it together mm-hmm. physically with components. Mm-hmm. So, the idea may come from us. Right. The implementation will come from them. And so it's a joint effort. Right, right. So what part do you like most as, you know, a researcher? Like what interests you, what jazzes you about research? I like all parts. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> Doing it, seeing it apply, seeing it work, mm-hmm. being adopted by industry. Uh, but most importantly, the fact that we're really training young people. Mm-hmm. to carry this on. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned for like the last, you know, one third of your career, you've been focusing on the sensors. Is there a particular area of research that you've liked the most or they're all your favorite babies? <laughs> well, I have enjoyed every aspect of research that I have done mm-hmm. tremendously. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm very enthusiastic about what we have been doing over the past uh, 10 or so years mm-hmm. uh, because when you develop a control study for an end, for a company, it goes into, uh, let's say, a manufacturing process and it stays there. Mm-hmm. And it makes a difference there. You know, it helps the company make more money, come out with a better product and so on. But the, what we're doing here has more of an impact mm-hmm. in everyday life pretty much across the world. You know, mm-hmm. especially, you know, the entire nation mm-hmm. can benefit from this. The entire world can benefit from this. And so being part of having an impact in everyday lives is a very exciting thing. Mm-hmm. Do you and keep that in mind with you on a day to day or do you have to sometimes take a step back and say, I am doing this thing that's like really making a difference? You know, the the only reason why I chose to go into engineering was to have an impact on mm-hmm. people and make a difference. Mm-hmm. So that's what I try to do every single day. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's really cool. Is there something that, you know, it probably aligns with you already saying that, that you're really looking forward or to the impact that you're making with the project that you're working on now? Um, this is, you know, maybe a strange question. Um, but I was kind of curious, like, what are the similarities, be- similarities between like heart pump modeling and power line health monitoring? Are there any similarities between those systems? Okay. You know, if you, if you talk to a cardiologist or a, um, biomedical engineer. Okay. You know, they, 
they wouldn't think of power line monitor health monitoring as anything remotely related to heart pumps. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, if you talk to somebody who is purely in power, mm-hmm. they will feel the same way that there is mm-hmm. no connection at all. The advantage that I have is that I'm a systems person. Mm-hmm. And to me, everything is a system. Mm-hmm. And so I see these as different systems. Mm-hmm. They all need to be controlled. You know, we need sensors to make them work the way they're meant to work. And so when you sit down and you write down the mathematical equations that describe the dynamic behavior of those, once you have the math, they all look the same. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so you can apply your controls knowledge, your uh, sensors knowledge to those, regardless of what kind of system you're looking at. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So from that point of view, uh, there is no difference. There is no difference. But speaking of difference, <laughs> <laughs> do you feel like you have to navigate, you know, the world or the like the academic world or the I guess you're even in your relationships with the industrial world differently, you know, being Hispanic? And if so, how? You know, to be honest, um, I lived in Canada for a long time. I lived in England for a year. Mm-hmm. Um, I was always made to feel very special, mm-hmm. never different. When I came to the U.S., that for the first time ever, I was told by some people, oh, you're different. I said, well, what do you mean by different? Mm-hmm. They said, well, you're not America. I said, well, wait a minute. Mm-hmm. I was born in South America. Right. That automatically makes me American. Right. Uh, are you talking about being from the U.S.? Right. Because, you know, there are many countries in the Americas mm-hmm. and all of us are Americans. Right. I mean, I'd be a U.S. born person, right. but I'm an American. And so they say, well, yeah, I meant U.S. I say, okay, well, that's a different thing. So, so for the first time ever, mm-hmm. actually, when I filled out forms, I had to, or I was asked, you know, what my ethnicity was. I had never seen that in any country. Oh, wow. Only in the U.S. I've seen that. Oh, wow. Um, so I'm sure that there are reasons for it. Right. Probably but in, good ones. But, but, it, but, you know, but in terms of doing my job, I don't care whether you are, you know, black, blue, yellow, whatever, mm-hmm. of where you come, as long as you have the ability to do the job and do it well. Mm-hmm. Uh, to me, that's what counts. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, yeah, I have, I, I, I lived through some situations that were pretty uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, I, for example, in the College of Engineering for the first about 25 years, I was the only Hispanic faculty, you know, full-time tenure mm-hmm. faculty with Hispanic background. Mm-hmm. And I was never really made feel differently. And I was mm-hmm. treated just like everybody else, mm-hmm. except mm-hmm. when it came time to be promoted. Mm-hmm. I could see that people whose resumes didn't even come across to mine mm-hmm. were being promoted, and I was not. Now, I have no way of knowing the reasons, right. but, you know, you can't help but wonder. Mm-hmm. Wonder with some degree of certainty, probably. <laughs> but um, do you have like any advice for, you know, someone who, you know, a, a younger Dr. Alex who might be coming up and, you know, navigating, you know, academia, like any advice that you have for them specifically in regards to, you know, their race? You know, to me, regardless of where you come from, mm-hmm. um, all that matters is what you are able to do. Mm-hmm. Typically, what happens when we immigrate to a different country is that we have to work at least twice as hard as somebody from that country. Mm-hmm. So work hard, persist, and always be proud of what you do, and mm-hmm. always keep your head up and high because mm-hmm. 
the fact that you're coming from a different place doesn't make you any different from anybody else. Mm-hmm. You know, I have been to about 60 some different countries. Oh, wow. And what you see is that we all want the same thing. We all want a decent life. Mm-hmm. We all want happiness. We all want to be able to provide for our loved ones, mm-hmm. regardless of where you go. Mm-hmm. It's the same. Mm-hmm. So why make it different mm-hmm. just because you're in a different country? Mm-hmm. So thank you for that. Um, I know it's, I don't know if you recognize it, but to someone out there, you're probably like a role model or someone that they're like looking to get wisdom from. So I wanted to leave space um, for that. Um, but I wanted to transition a little bit to like, you know, I guess just your humanity. So like, what do you enjoy doing outside of work? Uh, well, I enjoy tremendous spend the time with my wife, my uh-huh. wonderful wife. Uh-huh. Very wonderful. Um, you were talking about uh, her extreme, offline. Uh, extremely wonderful. She's just amazing. I, you know, I, I still wonder. <laughs> why she will have married me I mean, but but anyway i uh i enjoy gardening cooking my both my wife and i are excellent cooks mm-hmm. uh you, you know i do not bake but she is uh she is better than most pastry chefs that i know mm-hmm. um aside from being a fantastic cook we love to travel mm-hmm. um, yeah you say 60 countries over 60 yeah countries. 60 well we went to about 62 countries now oh, wow. so we we enjoy traveling yeah um <laughs> The, you know, we figure that in North America, it doesn't matter how crippled you are, you can always make it mm-hmm. everywhere because the countries that Canada and the U.S. are set up so that you can get access to anything, anytime, mm-hmm. regardless of what your physical condition is. Mm-hmm. That is not so in most, you know, pretty much the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, even in other developing countries, mm-hmm. accessibility is not like it is here. Mm-hmm. So we figure that we get all the overseas travel done well we could still walk (laughs) that makes sense uh traveling yeah is something that we enjoy both both of us enjoy um i do a lot of crossword puzzles Mm -hmm. and sudokus Mm -hmm. that's why i keep my mind active and i love i enjoy reading any genre any genre yeah uh right now i'm reading um life is messy by matthew kelly uh nice short little book uh that deals with the kind of things that we bring into life Every single day. Mm-hmm. But I enjoy reading pretty much anything. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't matter what it is. If, uh, I mean, I spend my life reading because of the nature of my job. Mm-hmm. So outside, I read anything but technical stuff. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Do you have a favorite book or podcast or anything like that? Not necessarily. No. no. I, I just enjoy, enjoy reading, reading in general. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned, you know, you wanted to, you know, travel younger while you had the ability to um is there like any part of you that like wants to be able to like maybe go back to venezuela or like contribute in some kind of way even if it's your well yeah i'll tell you what um i always thought that when i retired my wife and i would move back home Mm -hmm. because you know i mean we have friends there we have relatives there Mm -hmm. so that was always in the back of my mind Mm -hmm. and and you know Venezuela when I left was like a paradise it was such a Mm -hmm. incredibly fantastic place to live Mm -hmm. the geography is just beautiful over 2,000 miles of Caribbean beaches I mean wonderful regardless of where you went into the country the 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 scenery was just amazing Mm -hmm. the weather is like summer all year round it's never too hot it's never too cold it's not Humid, it's not dry, it's just ideal. Mm-hmm. But for the past 22 years, Venezuela has been under a dictatorship. And, you know, when I left, about nine out of 10 families were 
middle to upper middle class. Oh, wow. Now that's completely reversed. Nine out of 10 families live in extreme poverty. Uh, the um, minimum wage is just under $2.50. Oh, wow. But if you want to buy a loaf of bread, it costs you about $6. Wow. So I don't know how people are making it. Wow. So our dream of... So the cost of living is yeah. extremely disproportionate. I mean, they have dropped five zeros out of the currency a number of years ago, and they just dropped another six additional zeros. Oh, wow. So inflation is in the million percent. Wow, that's really sad. So, uh, you know, it's, it's not possible now for us to move back. The right. idea was to move back and actually, you know, use some of our expertise and knowledge mm-hmm. and experiences to share with others and help others, but... Yeah, I'm sorry. That's yeah, it's a sad situation. It is, it is. So now you're having to, I guess, pivot like what your original end of life plan is. Um, what do you like hope to be or like desire impact or reputation when all is said and done? And those students come back and tell me what a tremendous influence I have been mm-hmm. in their lives. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes students kind of learn to see you more like like a parent than a teacher. Mm-hmm. A, a lot of them do. And sometimes they share with you things that they wouldn't share with even their parents. Mm-hmm. So I've had so many of students like that. And so many students even come back and say, look, you know, I'm just so glad that you held my nose to the grind because now I'm a controls engineer right. and I'm succeeding. Right. And, or, or, you know, how how something that I said or did really had a lasting impression on them. Mm -hmm. So that is really, you know, to have, leave a mark on people, Mm -hmm. but a good mark. Mm -hmm. And in terms of the technology, to see the technology apply to make things easier and better. Mm -hmm. So I have a few, you know, questions. Um, Thank you for that. And I'm sure that like, you're already on track for that. You're already making that kind of impact anyways. Um, But is there anything that you felt like I didn't ask or any last sentiments that you'd like to share? Um, I'm not sure. I think, you, you know, you asked a lot of questions. I, maybe <laughs> I should say that, um, you know, wh- where I am and what I am is not only my effort. Mm-hmm. Um, I've had, you know, parents who were probably the best role models that I can think of to start with. Uh, I have a wonderful wife uh, whom I met in college. Mm-hmm. Uh, between my parents and her, they have always supported me. But both my wife and I have a very deep faith in our Lord, and mm-hmm. He has always guided us and mm-hmm. been there for us. Mm-hmm. And that is the number one thing that has helped us get to where we are. Mm-hmm. Without that, I don't think I would have been able to make any difference at all mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. become anybody. Mm-hmm. I believe that. Um, speaking of God, I know before you were saying that you have like a particular like electrical engineering story or not a joke per se, but maybe like a story that, you know, relates it to. Oh, yeah. There was this kid whom I homeschooled and, you know, I was probably about 13 at the time. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was probably maybe a year, my junior. Mm-hmm. And he asked me, so, you know, Alex, um, have you thought about what you want to do in life? And I say, well, I, um, I want to be an electrical engineer. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he kind of took a step back and said, wow, you, you really must believe in God. Mm-hmm. 
And I asked him, you know, why, why would you say that? He said, well, because to be an electric engineer means that you have to believe something you can't see. Mm-hmm. You know that electricity works. You see how it's everywhere. It makes everything do what it's supposed to do. Mm-hmm. And if you touch it, you can feel it, but you can't see it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's like believing in God. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so I thought that that was, God, you know, that was so profound. Right, right. Of, you know, an 11, 12-year-old to say that, I I was in awe. Right, right. And all well, thank you so much for your time. I'm sure even like people listen to this, you made an impact on them. So thank you so much, probably on behalf of the University of Akron as well for your service over the last, you know, couple of decades. <laughs> Make sure to visit us at uakron.edu forward slash diverse engineering to follow or share our podcast. Be sure to tune in every Tuesday and join us next Tuesday as we speak with Dr. Michelle Hufat. Keep rising. We hope that you've enjoyed listening to this episode of Diverse Engineering. I want to thank GPD Group and Continental Contatech for their generous support of this podcast series. If you'd like to help ease the financial burden of our diverse graduate students in the College of Engineering and Polymer Science, please consider a donation. We need your help as community sponsors and listeners to support these students in any way you can. To donate, text WIE to 71777 or give online at uacron.edu slash giving slash WIE. Thank you to podcast host Ebony Bond, Podcast Editor Daniel Groen, WZIP General Manager Chris Kepler, Podcast Creator Heidi Cressman, and the College of Engineering and Polymer Science for making this podcast a reality. This has been Gary Meller, President of the University of Akron. Go Zips!